Uh, hello, everyone, and welcome to Complete Works podcast of Romeo and Juliet by William Shakespeare. I'm Andrew Blackman. I'm the Artistic Director of Complete Works, and I'm here with the cast of our In Schools Touring Program, coming to you today from Nam, from Melbourne, the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, for this deep dive into Shakespeare's great romance tragedy. So before we begin, could we introduce ourselves and the characters that we play? Hello, everyone. My name is Lockie. I play a list of characters, including Mercutio, Tybalt, Juliet's nurse, the Prince of Verona, and Friar Lawrence. My name is Annabelle, and I play Juliet. And my name is Wolfgang, and I play uh, Romeo, and also Lord Capulet. Okay, so there are three actors for a very large cast uh, of, of Romeo and Juliet. Um, but this is our touring team, touring to schools all over uh, Victoria. So in this play about love and hate, uh, prejudice and violence, the constraints of tradition, um, fate versus free will, uh, these are the themes, of course, that we look at in the play, but uh, we look at the visual motifs too of light and dark. So you've toured this play all over Victoria for teenagers, about the same age as these central characters. Um, part of the Complete Works experience is the Q&A after the performance, and, and that's what this deep dive is about today. So could one of you or all of you um, perhaps might want to comment on, on this one? What is the most common question that the audience asks you after the, the performance? I would probably say... Before, how do you remember all the lines? And also, um, is Romeo and Juliet, are they going out in real life? After those questions, um, things about specifically about the text, I would say the first one that comes up immediately is, are Romeo and Juliet actually in love or is it just a crush? Is it love or lust? To which I think um, I say quite quickly that it, for me as an actor and as myself and as Romeo, I think it has to be love. For me, um, uh, I think there is evidence within the text to actually prove that as well. Um, we see Romeo at the start, you know, he's lovelorn for uh, um, for Rosalind, truly, but all of his rhymes and all of his language is really kind of uh, like heavy, and he's and he's and it's childish, you know. My soul is as lead, you know. I, I, it's all about him. It's all about earthly desires and earthly things, and it's you know, it falls over. As soon as he meets Juliet, what they have together, the first 14 lines they say to each other are a sonnet. They make up a poem within the poetry itself. And then even all of the, all of the language that Romeo uses after that is all about the stars. It's outside of himself. It is, it is the moon, the stars, the celestial. It is the universe. It is totally out of himself. It is for her and only her. You know, she, you know, arise fair sun and kill the envious moon. She is, she is light itself, basically. And I think that really proves that Romeo is not just has some sort of boyish crust for this, for this girl. I think that he is truly, truly head over heels and deeply in love and will do anything to preserve that love. Obviously, we see later he goes to very, very drastic and um, fatal uh, ways to preserve that love, really, um, going as so far to fight and kill for it. Um, Fantastic. Yeah. So you're well down into the play by mm. this stage. But here we are. We have a, a teenager who is grappling with this new feelings of love mm. and um, um, and what that means uh, for him. Mm. Uh, 
And for for Juliet, how is uh, how do you approach uh, Annabelle? I I approach that question, the answer to that question, fairly similarly. I think for me, it has to be love. It has to be. It has to be for for the play to have any point, really, any purpose or sense. Otherwise, we get to the end of this, you know, tragic tragedy. It's really so utterly, totally, completely tragic the way that this all ends. And if it was over a crush, then you know, it's it's kind of for nothing. Do you know what I mean? And I think I think we get that question a lot because life is so very different now. And I think you know, we're two teenagers of that age to fall in love. Uh, it, we'd probably say, you know, it's all right. It's a crush. You're young. Grow up. <laughs> It'll pass. Don't jump in feet first. You know, I think we sort of prioritise things a lot differently now. You know, I wouldn't necessarily forfeit my entire life for the person I love. And maybe that's, you know, sort of really dry and unromantic, but there are other important things to me in my life, like my career, like, Mm -hmm. you know, security, like safety, like friends, like family. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, the context of the play is incredibly important in this instance. Mm -hmm. And, and maybe for Romeo and Juliet, their lives looked so, so very different. And so maybe love was a much higher priority for them. And I think, you know, Love is an enormous priority for everybody, mm. isn't it? When it happens, it's Absolutely. the thing and, that and drives it us is. all. It, it still not? is for me, but I um I think also the older I get, the more I the more I appreciate a calm love, a deliberate love, one that doesn't make me. <laughs> You're a little older than mm. Juliet. Oh, no, a little I, bit. I, I think I'm roughly <laughs> twice her age, and then some. Lucky. As much as I agree with these two, it is important to also recognise that if you strongly believe that they are not in love, that it's just a bit of a crush. That can also be correct. The beauty about theatre and writing is that you get to choose your own your own ideas about the play. And if you strongly believe that, so long as you've got evidence in the text, like Wolfie just had when he described why Romeo was in love, if you can find a counter argument to that, that's also correct. So go for your life. And I can understand that because the play goes over the length of what? It's a couple of days, a few days. Mm. And they go to such extreme lengths for this Love, So I do understand why people sort of grapple with, are they in love? Are they not in love? But yeah, just make sure you've got those those things to back up your argument. While we're on the theme of love, um, Lockie, perhaps you could talk to this, uh, playing both Mercutio, Mm -hmm. um, Romeo's best friend, Mm -hmm. uh, and also Friar Lawrence in the play, uh, that uh, father figure, or or at least that that older figure in... um, in Romeo's life. Perhaps you could talk to the nature of those different sorts of love there. Totally. Well, um, once again, it sort of comes up to interpretation. I'll take Mercutio. Mercutio is such an interesting character. And when I take a look at Mercutio, I see such a beautiful bond and a beautiful relationship between Mercutio and Romeo. And me as a queer person, I can kind of see Mercutio as a queer-coded character. He's grappling with something, something that's not quite right. I don't know if there's an illness in there that he is sort of deciphering or maybe it's his feelings towards Romeo. It could very well be that Mercutio is gay and is in love with Romeo and it's an unspoken love, an unrequited love as well. And that could be one of the reasons why Mercutio has such anger problems. Um, 
But yeah, I, f- I find that so beautiful and so juicy. And when I watch interpretations like Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet, the way that they've sort of interpreted that, Mercutio does drag. And mm-hmm. Mercutio, the way that he looks at Romeo, it's, it's this... So there might be something there, which I think Mm -hmm. is definitely worth exploring, especially for all you queer young listeners out there. Um, The relationship between um, Fry Lawrence and Romeo is another beautiful one. Um, I'll include the nurse in this as well with, with Juliet. They sort of take on the role, the parental role for these two young teenagers. Their parents are quite distant. They're off sort of dealing with other things that they don't really sort of take up the parental roles. Yes, they are their father and their mother, but they don't actually sort of provide them with parenting sorts of things. Mm -hmm. So Romeo kind of leans on Friar Lawrence for this kind of guidance in life, kind of what like a father would do to a son. And the same with the nurse. The the nurse actually breastfeeds Juliet. We we see that in the text. And so that they're... um, immediately bond from such an early age. And we know that the nurse has lost a child as well and has lost a husband. So Juliet really is the nurse's family and as close to blood as you can get. Um, So there are these other beautiful, loving relationships Mm -hmm. throughout the play. And of course, on the other side of of that love is is hate and the prejudice that is in the play, the, the two households that are bare and ancient grudge. I'm just harking back to the, um, the young people in the play um, and, and the strictures of, of tradition and religion and the society that, um, that they live in. Um, do you think that they're, they're trying to work out who they are and the, the confusing time of, of, of adolescence is um, also held down by this weight of the society? Totally. And that's probably one of the reasons why they do jump to these such extremes because they live in this world that is full of so much hate. And we're not told why this hate exists. We don't know why the Montagues are fighting the Capulets. Yeah, it's, a, it's an ancient grudge. It's really, and it, and it's the, one of those things where you have conflict that, you know, both parties don't really remember why even they're fighting. They just know that they hate each other. So that's the reason they that's, fight. That's the conditioning, isn't it? Yeah. And, and even the prince at the, set, at the start says it really starts from nothing. Bre- like three civil brawls bred of an airy word. There's been three fights in the last three weeks bred of nothing but someone saying, oi, you over there. Mm. I think Romeo and Juliet specifically understand they know they must stay within themselves true to their families. Even Juliet says, my only love sprung from my only hate. You know, she understands that she must hate this Montague boy for some reason, yet eschews it, yet throws it away because obviously her love is so overpowering. And they, they must overcome these strictures of society even to get married in secret. Yes, they are still getting married, but they're doing it in such a secretive way that it really kind of um, throws away that tradition. Do they have an alternative? Well, I feel like not really. I think what it's that sort of thing about um, asking, it's asking forgiveness rather than asking for permission. It's a lot easier if they were just to get married, just because in this time, if you were to get married, that's it. You are married. There is no annulment. There is no divorce. There is no anything unless the, I think the Pope has to say so. Mm-hmm. Um, so you were to get married and that would be it. So I think they would, if they had more time, 
if they would get married by Friar Lawrence. And, and as he says, this may, this may solve the rancor between the two houses. They would come to understand each other from these two young people's love. Unfortunately, that doesn't happen. So there's this uh, impulsiveness with this, the meeting and the love. Juliet appears at the start of the play as the dutiful daughter. She says so to her dad. Why does that change? I think that's very interesting. A question that we had recently um, was about why our interpretations of Romeo and Juliet are, or Juliet specifically, is quite young. And you think about other interpretations. Lockie mentioned the Baz Luhrmann film earlier. Claire Dane's portrayal of Juliet is a lot more grounded and more mature than my interpretation in that specific moment. I'll look to like if looking liking move, marriage is an honour that I dream not of. She comes across sort of quite deadpan and sarcastic in that moment. So like marriage, yeah, wonderful. I think I think for me, for one thing, theatre and film are so incredibly different and, you know, I wanted that lightness and that um, childish energy, especially to sort of contrast her intellect. She's got, you know, the vibrancy of of adolescence, but a far more mature intellect. And I think both of those things can exist within one person. I think, it, you know, we talked briefly about the context of the play earlier as well. And I think, you know, Juliet's quite aware of her position in in this world that she finds herself in and she does need to be the dutiful daughter and then she needs to be the dutiful wife and then she needs to be the doting mother. And that was kind of her trajectory. And I think I think she knew that. And I think also in society that specific society at that time, honour and loyalty and duty towards your family, specifically towards your father, was it was just how things were. It was mm-hmm. how things had to be. And I think that's one of the reasons that everything blows up so much is because she sees this boy for the first time and suddenly all of that melts away. It's like a thunderclap or an earthquake. And I think that's one of the reasons that everything is thrown into such turmoil because she's being pulled in these two different directions, wanting to, you know, be the good, dutiful daughter, but also knowing that, knowing that, you know, regardless of opinion, her whole life depends on being with Romeo because that's how she feels. It becomes overwhelming, doesn't it? Absolutely. This, um, feeling of love mm. where everything goes by the wayside. Mm. And I think that's and- a feeling that, you know, regardless of age or, or opinion that, if you're not familiar with it yet, you might become familiar with it, <laughs> knowing, feeling so desperately in love with someone that if if you're not with them, it, it physically pains you and, to, and the thought of losing them is, is un, unthinkable. You can see that within even the text for Romeo as well, is that banishment and to be without Juliet is to be what would be go to hell. It is worse than death. It is worse than anything because heaven is here. And I think that definitely goes to show as well. That is just, it is just so very unbearable that, and it probably informs their decisions later, their fatal decisions later, that to be without each other is a fate worse than death. When do, do things change? I'm thinking about the star-crossed lovers concept, the idea of fate versus free will that runs throughout this play and Shakespeare is imbuing these characters with humanism, the quality of the humanists to make their own decisions uh, and how that runs contrary to or with this idea of fate. Romeo appears to be aware of this 
feeling from the very, very beginning, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. He, he Even when um, the boys are heading to the party, he understands that there's something in him, there's something in the stars that is not quite right. So, so what is that? Is that a feeling? Is that a, a sense? It's is a sense. A, is it a gut thing? Is it something that is just in the cells of the body? What is it? I think so. I think it is just that sense of impending doom that he feels something's not right. And whether that's Shakespeare saying, well, are these, are these characters, uh, do they understand something about the stars and the fate that we don't understand? I'm not, I'm not too sure. I think these characters are very understanding of their own trajectory sometimes. I think Mm -hmm. they can understand what is, and obviously we have a lot of talk of the stars and Mm -hmm. a lot of talk of the celestial, but again and again, it comes up. You could argue that it's just a theatrical convention Mm -hmm. of foreshadowing where we have Juliet saying, I see the art and now they're up below as a, as a dead in a tomb. And Romeo says the same thing. Mm -hmm. Obviously that foreshadows again, but there's just a constant, like feeling something isn't quite right Mm -hmm. and whether, and this is the question we often get as well is, is it fate that drives them to these things? Is it their fault or is it actually the fault of, of people? And I would say it's a bit of both really. You can't really argue. I I would say for myself, you would have to have one and and the other as well. Seeing as you have a man such as Friar Lawrence having all the good intentions and making plans, sending letters and all of these things, boom, there's a pandemic in Mantua and you can't get in. So are they victims of circumstance at the same time? This idea of fate and destiny is quite interesting, isn't it? Because you, in order to uh, be influenced by fate or destiny, you have to be an active participant. You can't just let things happen. You have to be active. And it's it's super interesting because Friar Lawrence constantly reminds them both, Romeo in particular, to slow down. He can recognise in them that there is this great impulse that they are just acting so fast and just want to get to the juice of love. And the Friar constantly is like, calm down. Can you give us the quote? Yeah, too swift arrives as tardy as too slow, meaning... Slow and steady wins the race. Yeah, I think so, yeah. Absolutely. So temperance. Um, mm. It's an interesting quality um, that um, Shakespeare is, is, is looking at, isn't it, in this play of extremes, that on the one side there is this passion and this heat, and here we are set in Verona, in Italy, in, in a summertime, uh, where all of this heat and passion and love and violence on the street, but on the other side there's temperance and reason, which is what the friar is is asking these young people to do, isn't it? And the friar is often the one who gets blamed. Like we've heard of um, uh, productions where the friar actually gets hung at the end because the two heads of the family need someone to blame. And so they blame the friar. I'm not Sure, what if is this that? Is what is that? Correct. Well, it's power. what is that about it's, human nature that needs to blame and point the finger yeah. and therefore absolve the individual of any engagement? That's exactly what it is. It's human nature. It's power. It's not want to take responsibility for your own actions. Mm. The people that are responsible for the deaths is the grudge between the Capulets and the Montagues. As I said before, we don't know what this grudge is even for, mm. and in certain productions, they choose to blame the friar, when the friar was trying to resolve this hatred, Mm -hmm. the friar's intentions are good. They just want to make sure that um, the two households become friends. And unfortunately it doesn't go his way. And these 
two teenagers don't listen to him and we all know how it ends. We do, we do. And it takes the death of these two young people for those families to come together and I suppose that's the nature of the tragedy, Why one of the reasons why it's called the tragedy of Romeo and Juliet in that Shakespearean sense, a society changes. I mean, when you think about it, just to play devil's advocate here, if I were those parents, either one of those parents, I would, can you imagine how, how much worse it would feel to lose your only child and to know deep within yourself that it's your fault? Of yeah. course, they're going to point the finger at someone else, you know, and it's pretty easy to point the finger at the friar. I think it's pretty easy to point the finger at the nurse as well, to be honest. Mm-hmm. She does try. She does try to tell Juliet to bend to her father's will, her mother's will, to marry Count Paris, you know, because that love, ex- that marriage excels your first. But she's also the one who does Juliet's bidding behind everybody's backs and makes sure that the two teenagers can be together. She's the one that <laughs> makes sure Romeo's gone before the parents come in and discover that he's deflowered their young daughter, you know. So, of course, they want to blame someone else. And it is that very innate human nature. Well, their hearts are in the right place, though, aren't they? Um, the, uh, yeah. the friar and, and, yeah, and the nurse. The they want to difference. help these uh, young people. And I can certainly understand that it might be a, a production choice or a directorial choice or a comment on society that perhaps things don't change and this blame still happens. Should we talk a little bit about class? Because it's interesting that those two characters, Friar and the nurse, are of lower class and they're the ones that sort of take up the parental roles over the upper class echelon of the, the parents. Yeah, I, I think I think that's a really good point. Honestly, I feel as though when you have the ability um, in yourself and have the means to just live a quite a noble life, you would probably want to spend your days doing something. What are you going to do? I don't know. I fight another noble class. And I think that's what really happens. These working class people, let's say the friar and the nurse, know things about life that the upper class cannot. Even we see... Um, uh, we don't have it in our production, but Lord Montague at the beginning goes, oh, my son's kind of sad. I don't know, Benvolio, you do something. It's honestly, it's the people who have these feelings of anguish every day that know what to do. And I, Annabelle, what would you say on that? I was going to say um, that it's interesting to look at death as the great equaliser in this production. I think the prince's final speech at the end, the epilogue, all are punished kind of exemplifies that because he's saying, look at like, look at you, look at what's happened, look at what you've done to yourselves. Now you're all equal. Every single person here is punished. Who was above has come down, who was below is maybe come up and now your two children are ultimately canonised in saints. Uh, we've talked quite a lot about the tragedy in this play and, mm-hmm. and the darker sides of things. It's also a comedy, isn't it? Particularly mm. the first half of this mm. play is, so, is fun. so fun and so, so funny, yeah, so light. That, that we, we've got light and dark happening in this play. Um, talk to us a little bit about the fun that happens at the beginning of the play. Yeah, I, I mean, I think I think Stephen Fry was saying that if if Romeo had waited five seconds, this play would be the greatest comedy that it was ever been written. Obviously, there's what do you mean? Do you mean uh, not um, uh, not uh, not killed? Not not um, drink the poison and then be like, oh, wonderful! I thought you were dead. I thought you were dead. Oh, wonderful! Let's all live happily ever after. Mm-hmm. But yes, it is. A, it's such a fun and playful play at the start. We have these boys, these these young men 
um, who are so, uh, well, boisterous, Benvolio, Mercutio and Romeo, such fraternal love and they have such fun, like, playing with each other, especially Mercutio. I, I love that character, sort of poking fun at each of these royal houses. Yes, he's royalty himself, but he can see outside of himself. You know, these, you know, these cats, these fops who speak in such ridiculous language. Mm. And then we have this beautiful, fun scene between the nurse and Juliet. Oh, it's hilarious. Uh, Who's absolutely pulling her leg the entire time. Lockie, how do you feel playing in the, in that scene? Yeah, I, I love doing it. And it's it's a great sort of like nod to what happened in the past. Obviously, men were the only ones allowed to act. So men had to play female roles. And of course, when you've got a role like this, you sort of camp it up and go for the sort of physical humour. I'm tall, I'm bald, I have a moustache, I should not be playing <laughs> a woman. Why not? <laughs> Perfect. Perfect casting. And of course. <laughs> we put on a little voice like this. <laughs> to entertain a little oh, bit yeah. further, but it's just mm. so much fun. It's slapstick. It's so witty between the two and they just love it. It just shows their relationship. They're so playful. Mm, the banter is beautiful. And I think, like personally, I think, it is the comedic first half that makes it so tragic mm. in the second half mm-hmm. because you are given this beautiful world where there, there is so much joy and love and lightness and laughter and then... Potential. I'm, oh, and potential and, and it's the loss of that potential as well. These two young lives cut so tragically short. I remember when I first watched the Baz Luhrmann version and I didn't really know the story. I would have been quite young. My sister and I were on our feet screaming at the television for her to wake up because it's just, it's so, it's so unthinkable that the just by 10 seconds or by a missed messenger or a lost letter, it's just so, it, I think it is the beauty of the first half that deepens the darkness of the second half. Great. And Shakespeare's writing about universal themes and ideas, isn't he? It's one of the reasons why we continue to study his plays today. Why do we study Romeo and Juliet today? How can we relate? What are the themes that in Romeo and Juliet that we can see reflected in our society here today? I mean, unfortunate as it is, we still have huge prejudices in our society. We can look back at, you know, Italy all that time ago and like, wow, what, you know, I don't understand, but of course, we still have huge problems with race, with class, with a bigotry of any type. And I think it shows us that, you know, one thing that it can overcome these things is understanding the humanity of each other. Understanding that two young people who, uh, for all intents and purposes, aren't meant to love each other, do. And I think that is something that really Shakespeare still teaches us today that it doesn't matter race, creed, anything like that. Sexuality. Sexuality, gender, anything. That it is truly, and sometimes you can say it's a bit naff, but it is truly love kind of conquers all really. And it's something that we all experience as well. Even if you haven't yet, I promise you will, you will, you will, you will fall in love. <laughs> well, that seems like an opportune place to wrap up our podcast um, today. Uh, thank you to the cast for your um, insights, to the ideas, themes and issues and the characters particularly that you play. Um, and we'd like to thank you for listening in on our podcast today. Uh, you can find more podcasts in the Complete Works Library at the Complete Works website or listening to more on Spotify. 